Colossians 1, verse 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. The word of the Lord. Have you ever noticed that um, people respond to suffering in different ways? Even people who are um, in the exact same circumstances will respond to suffering in different ways. Maybe one of the classic examples of this is the story of Viktor Frankl. We've talked about him before. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist who uh, was sent to the Nazi death camps during World War II. And uh, it was a place of unimaginable suffering. Viktor Frankl lost everything. He lost his family, his wife, his parents. I think the only other person in his family who survived was his sister. The death camps were places of unimaginable suffering. People were starved, they were tortured, they were overworked, they were killed in gas chambers, they were burned in ovens. It was horrible suffering. But even in the midst of all that suffering, Viktor Frankl, the scientist in him, couldn't stop observing and analyzing all the things that were going on around him and the different ways that people were responding to the suffering. So he noticed, for instance, that um, in the face of this brutal, bitter suffering, some people became brutal and bitter themselves. They began stealing from their other fellow prisoners, or they became informers to the Nazis. The suffering made them bad. Other people, the suffering made them just give up. They, um, they just gave up hope. Some of them literally just laid down on the ground, curled up in a ball, and died. The suffering made them hopeless. But Viktor Frankl noticed there was another group of people whom the suffering, it didn't make them bad, it didn't make them bitter, it didn't make them hopeless, it actually made them better. They were able to stay kind, stay hopeful, stay courageous, stay resilient, stay compassionate. And Viktor Frankl wanted to know why. Why is it that that these people could respond to suffering in a way that instead of making them bad or hopeless or bitter, it actually made them better? Why did that happen? The, The big question that he was asking, he wrote about it when he got out of the camps. His whole answer to that question was his most famous book. It's called Man's Search for Meaning, and the title says it all. The main premise of the book is that everybody lives for something. 
Everybody has something that gives meaning to their lives. And unless you have a meaning in your life that death cannot touch and suffering cannot take away from you, then you'll be crushed. So our big question this morning is, where do you find a meaning like that? We're in a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians who were living in the ancient Roman city of Colossae. And up until this point in the letter, Paul has mostly been talking about what God is doing in their lives. But here he takes a little detour. He gives us a window into what's going on in his life. And what's going on in his life right now is he's in prison. He's suffering. But amazingly, at the very beginning of this passage, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice. How in the world can he say that? The answer to the question is in a little word that he uses a couple of times in verse 27. It's the word glory. Paul wants us to know how is it possible not just to survive suffering, but to rejoice in suffering? How is it possible that suffering can make us not bad, not hopeless, not bitter, but better? The answer is glory. What does that mean? And what does it have to do with suffering? The only way that your suffering can be transformed is to find a meaning that transforms your suffering. So let's find that by looking at this concept of glory. And we're going to look at it in three steps. We're going to see the goal of glory, the recipients of glory, and the path to glory. Okay? The goal, the recipients, and the path to glory. First, the goal of glory. The first thing we need to understand, if we want to understand Paul's sufferings, is that his sufferings themselves are actually part of something much bigger. And that something bigger is the gospel. So if you look in verse 25, Paul says that God God made him a minister of his word. That's the gospel. And then in verses 26 and 27, he goes on to call it a mystery. Mystery is one of Paul's favorite words for talking about the gospel. And we're going to come back to that word in just a bit. But what is this mystery? What is the gospel itself? Paul tells us in verse 27, at the very end, he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. One of God's main goals in the gospel is that Christ would dwell in you and give you glory. Now, what does that mean? The word glory, the Hebrew word for glory literally means weight. It means heaviness. The more glory something has, the more it weighs, the more it matters. When Viktor Frankl said everyone lives for something, this is what he's talking about. Every single person in this room, something in your life weighs the most. You're living for something. Something matters more to you than anything else. And whatever it is, that's your glory. It gives you weight. It makes you real. It's the way you know that you're not a nobody. You're a somebody. So for some people, it's money. Having money helps people feel like they matter. It's their glory. For other people, it's being beautiful or desirable. For other people, it's being really smart. And we could just keep going right on down the list, couldn't we? For other people, it's your achievements. For others, it's being right. For others, it's being unique. For others, it's, um, it's being the best at what you do. For other people, it might be admiration or approval or having other people think that you're a really good person. Whatever it is, in every single one of our lives, we're living for something. We look to something to give us glory, to help us to know that, that our lives matter, that we're real, that we're not a nobody, but we're a somebody. 
Friends, this is the human condition. This is all of us. So for instance, Madonna once gave an interview in which she said this. She said, I have an iron will and all of my life has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. See, everybody's struggling to prove that we're somebody. I mean, think about it. Um, it's hurtful when people criticize you or condemn you or hate on you, isn't it? But it's even worse when people ignore you because it makes you feel like you don't even exist, like you're not real, no glory. And so all of these things that we look to to give us glory, the problem is, and this is what Madonna is talking about, none of them really last. It's kind of like that old black and white movie, The Invisible Man. It's about a scientist who found a way to make himself invisible. And the only way that people could see him was if he wrapped himself up in bandages. Friends, you and I, our glory, the things we look to to give ourselves glory in our life, they're like those bandages. We wrap ourselves up in them. The problem is if the bandages disappear, it's like we disappear. That's our problem. That's what we're always longing for is to know that we're real, to have this glory. The great promise of the gospel is that God gives you his glory. He makes you real. He makes you really real. All of the old fairy tales are full of this longing. Pinocchio longs to be transformed from a wooden puppet into a real boy. Or Cinderella longs to be transformed from a lonely, abused, overlooked stepsister into a radiant princess. Why do human beings write stories like this? It's because this is the truest index of our souls. This is what we long for, this glory more than anything else. The gospel gives it to you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. No one has ever described it better than C.S. Lewis in his great essay, The Weight of Glory. He says this, He's, he writes, it is written that we shall stand before God, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father and a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Can you imagine what it would be like for God to look upon you like this? For God to delight in you like that? Then you would know that you're somebody. Then you would be real. That would be the end of our fear of inadequacy. That would be the end of our inescapable fear of, of, of um, insignificance, the unbearable lightness of being. It would be the somebodyness that we all long for. It's the glory we all long for. The gospel gives it to you. And that's the first thing we see. It's the goal of glory. But secondly, Paul shows us here the recipients of glory. Because here's the next question. Who's eligible 
for this gospel? Who's eligible for this glory? This is one of the most amazing things in this passage, and it doesn't really show up in our translation, but if you look at verse 28, if we were to translate that verse literally, here's what Paul says. Him, that's Jesus, we proclaim, warning every human being and teaching every human being that we may present every human being mature in Christ. When we read it in the original language, it really pops out. Who's eligible for the gospel? Every human being. Now, we love that. In our culture, that sounds so tolerant and inclusive, but let's press this a little further. Who do we say is eligible for God's love and acceptance? In our culture, we would say, oh, every human being. No brainer. But is it really? Uh, Let's ask the question in a different way. What is one of the biggest objections to Christianity. It's the idea that Jesus is the only way to God. People will say things like, you know, this is one of the things I really hate about Christianity. It's so exclusive. Why is Jesus the only way to God? Why can't any good person find God? Do you see the assumption in there? The assumption is it's the good people who find God and the bad people who don't. So people will frequently say, you know, this is what really bothers me about Christianity. It's this idea that someone could be a really horrible person their whole life. They could be an axe murderer, but then on their deathbed, they repent and are welcomed into God's arms. But then someone else who's lived their whole life as a really good person would would not get in. I can't believe that. The reason you can't believe it is because you're being exclusive. You're just being exclusive in a different way. The default operating principle of of our human hearts is that the good people are in, the bad people are out. It's still exclusive. It's just exclusive in a different way. But what about people who, who lived horrible circumstances, grew up with horrible families, horrible sufferings, and they ended up becoming horrible people themselves? How would you have turned out if that had been you? You see, the operating principle of the gospel is completely different from our human hearts because the operating principle of the gospel is not the goodness of human beings, it's the grace of God. And boy, that really pops out at us in verse 28 when Paul says, uh, look at the beginning of verse 28. Right at the beginning, he says, him we proclaim, that's Jesus, him we proclaim. He's talking about the gospel. What is the irreducible essence of the gospel? What what is the gospel that Paul proclaims? Is it being a a really good person, we proclaim? Is it living lives of justice and mercy, we proclaim? Is it being on the right side of history, we proclaim? No. Him we proclaim. Jesus we proclaim. The primary message, the essential message of the gospel is not a set of moral, ethical principles. It's Jesus The primary message of the gospel is not about you and what you must do. It's about Jesus and what he has already done for you. That's the message of the gospel, and that's what Paul is proclaiming. And listen, I understand, you know, many of us ask the question, well, what about people who never heard about Jesus? That is an understandable question. That is a fair question. And to be honest, the Bible doesn't really give us a lot of information about that. The Bible says you need Jesus doesn't really tell us a lot about what God does about all the people who never heard. And even more than that, you know, there's a story at the end of the Gospel of John 
where Jesus is talking to Peter, who betrayed Jesus horribly, by the way. I mean, he really blew it. But they're talking, and Peter looks, and he sees another disciple standing by, and and Peter asks Jesus, well, what about him? And Jesus says, what about him? You follow me. In other words, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about what God is doing with other people. Jesus says, how are you responding to me? Are you able to admit that even though you think you're a really good person, that there's still pride and rebellion and selfishness and self-centeredness in your heart? And that the only qualification you need in order to be welcomed into my arms is to admit that you're not qualified and to simply trust in what I have done for you by sheer grace. Do you know what this means? Anyone can come. Every human being. The the logic of our heart says the good people are in, the bad people are out. That's the way the logic of our hearts works. But the gospel is not the good people are in, the bad people are out. The gospel is anyone can come, every human being. The only qualification you need is to know that you're not qualified. Do you realize what this means? This is the end of the other You know what I'm talking about. To other someone is to treat someone as as inferior, as less than human, and then to use that as a basis for oppressing that person or that group of people, to marginalize them, to subjugate them. And, And we see that all around us in our world, don't we? People othering other people. We see it in race, in gender, in sexuality, in class, in politics, in religion. We all do it. We all other other people. But look at Paul here. Who's he writing to? He's writing to a group of Gentile Christians. Now, before Paul became a Christian, he would have loathed these people. He would have othered them. Because, first of all, they're Gentiles, and as a Jewish person, Paul would have felt racially superior. And because they're Christians, before Paul met Jesus, he killed Christians. He felt religiously superior to them. But here he is, and he's, he's, he's saying, I pour out my lives to these people. I love these people. I'm giving my life for them. That's why Paul calls the gospel a mystery. You know what a mystery is? According to Paul, when you and I think of this word mystery, the way we think of it is, it's like when you're reading a mystery book, and, and you're, reading, you're looking for the clues. Because we think a mystery is something that if you work really hard, you're supposed to be able to figure it out, Right? When Paul calls the gospel a mystery, that's not what he's talking about. It's really more like a joke. You know how comedy works? Comedy, you know, it it begins, first there's a setup. And the setup leads you down a path, leading you to expect a certain end to the story. But then comes the punchline. And the punchline, the reason the punchline is funny is because you never see it coming. You never would expect it. That's why jokes are funny, because it leads you down to end the story in a way that you would never expect. Paul says the gospel is a mystery. What he means by that is it's more like a punchline. It's something we would never expect, no matter how hard you work. You would never expect it. You would never see it coming, not in a million years. Grace is a mystery, because we would never see it coming. We would never expect it. That's not the way our hearts work. Our hearts work according to the logic of the good people are in, the bad people are out. But that is not how the the logic of God's heart works. The logic of God's heart works according to grace. Anyone can come. Everyone, every human being can come in. 
the, the, the logic of grace is the, is the strange, mysterious, unexpected logic of God. And that's the way his heart works. God is always doing things in a way that we would never expect it, every human being. And that leads to our last point and the one you've been waiting so patiently for. We've seen the goal of glory. We've seen the recipients of glory. But lastly, we see here the path to glory. Because after we've seen this, and only after we've seen all this, can we finally come back to the question we began with. How is it possible not just to survive suffering, but to rejoice in it? How is that possible? Because everyone suffers. Some people more, some people a lot more, some people less, but no one is immune. And let me just say, you know, this morning, I'm not going to get into the question of why God allows suffering in this world. We had a, a sermon series last year called The Questions of God, and we had a whole sermon in that series that's all about the question of why God allows evil and suffering in this world. The shortest answer is that because of human rebellion and sin, um, we now live in a fallen world. Sin has ripped the fabric of creation, so now we live in a world in which everything is falling apart. But the question this morning is not, why does suffering exist? Our question is, what is God doing with the suffering? How does he use the suffering in our lives? And the answer to the question, again, is right at the beginning of our passage. If you look, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. What's amazing is what he says right after that. You know, in modern Western secular culture, a culture which says that there is no God, this world is all there is, the best we can do with suffering is try to avoid it. In a world that's, that's caused by random forces, those forces are going to randomly impact you at certain times. You are going to suffer. Secular culture says the best we can try to do is avoid the suffering. But even secular culture says, look, if you're going to suffer, at least try to make the best of it. So we have sayings, slogans in our culture, things like, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger, right? Or pain is weakness leaving the body. They put that one up on the wall at your gym to keep you coming back. <laughs> Even secular culture says that, look, if you're going to suffer, let's try to make something good out of it, some way that it might benefit you, make you a better person, but if you look at what Paul says here, he doesn't say, I rejoice in my sufferings for my sake, even though he could. Because one of the beautiful things about Christianity is that it says suffering and glory are integrally related. That suffering is one of the main ways that God uses to produce glory in your life. That, that suffering is, in Christianity, it's not just, well, if you have to suffer, try to make the best of it. In the gospel, suffering is one of the main ways God uses to produce the glory in your life. So if you look at Romans chapter 8, Paul says, I consider that our um, present sufferings at this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. The gospel always connects suffering and glory together. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, even though the outer self is, is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day for our light, momentary sufferings are preparing for us, producing within us an eternal weight of glory that beyond all comparison. 
The gospel always connects suffering and glory together and says that the suffering is one of the main ways that God produces glory in your life. It's one of the main ways that God makes you more gracious, more thankful, more grateful, more courageous, more resilient, more compassionate. So that at the very beginning of this passage here, Paul would be perfectly justified in saying, I rejoice in my suffering for my sake, but that's not what he says. He says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And remember, who's he talking about here? The other, the enemy. Paul's saying, I rejoice in my suffering, not just because it's producing glory in my life, but because it has the power and the possibility of producing glory in your life. Friends, I can't stand here and pretend to have all the answers for why God allows suffering in this world and in your lives. I'm not going to stand here and patronize you and mollycoddle you with trite, simplistic platitudes. There are probably all kinds of reasons that we may never know for why God allows all the different kinds of sufferings in our lives. But if you belong to Jesus, if you trust Jesus, if you follow Jesus, One of the things that God is always wanting and always willing to do in and through your sufferings is to use them as a means of of revealing His glory to the world around you, a means of producing glory, not just in your life, but in the lives of other people. Because did you notice in this passage how often Paul uses language like making known the gospel? making fully known the gospel, revealing the gospel. Paul sees his whole life as being all about making known, making fully known, revealing the riches of the glory of the mystery of the gospel. And one of the main ways that happens is through Paul's sufferings. So that whatever happens to Paul, whatever God does in his life, Paul says yes. Whatever sufferings God allows in Paul's life, whether it's prison or shipwreck or beatings or persecution or all kinds of other things, which God did allow in Paul's life, whatever it is, Paul says, God, you can do whatever you want in my life. As long as, as it helps other people to see Jesus, I, nothing gives me greater joy than to be a vehicle of your glory in the lives of other people. That means that no matter what happens to you, no matter what suffering you go through, when you say yes to God, you're saying yes to all the ways that God might use your suffering, not just for glory in your life, but for glory, to reveal God's glory to the other people around you. He uses your sufferings to reveal himself. You could think about it like this. Imagine a a sunny, clear day not a cloud in the sky. Do you have that picture in your mind? Now, let me ask you a question. Can you see the light? And I don't mean the sun. That's the source of the light. I mean, can you see the light itself? No. You could see everything by the light, but you never actually see the light itself. Now, imagine that some clouds come into the sky, some dark, ominous, dangerous storm clouds. The clouds come into the sky, and no doubt you've seen this before. Suddenly a shaft of light will pierce one of those storm clouds. And all of a sudden, the light that's been there the whole time, but you could never see it, all of a sudden now it's focused and beautiful and brilliant. It's a radiant, glorious beam of light, and you would never have seen it were it not for the cloud. Friends, if you let him, if you say yes to God, 
He will make your cloud the suffering. His glory is the light. When you say yes to Jesus, when you say, Jesus, you can do whatever you want with me, he takes your suffering and uses it as the means by which he reveals his glory to other people. And the way that he does that, the reason that he can do that with you is because he's already done it perfectly through Jesus Christ. I don't know if you noticed in verse 24, at the end of that verse, Paul says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. A lot of people over the centuries have looked at that verse and struggled with, what does Paul mean there? When he says, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, does he mean Jesus didn't do enough? That Jesus needs our help? That somehow we're supposed to complete or finish what Jesus wasn't capable of doing himself? No. It simply means this, that we enter partially into the pattern of what Jesus has already done perfectly. The pattern of what Jesus has already done perfectly. We enter into the pattern. It's the pattern of the gospel. What is that pattern? Glory through suffering. Glory through suffering. That's the pattern of the gospel. And Jesus has already done it perfectly. Because who is Jesus? He is the ultimate true king of glory. I mean, just a little earlier in this passage, Paul says that Jesus Christ is the God of the universe through whom all things were created and in whom all things hold together. He is the ultimate somebody. There is nothing and no one in the universe more glorious than Jesus, more significant than Jesus, more powerful than Jesus, more radiant than Jesus, more real than Jesus. Jesus doesn't just have glory. Jesus is the very glory of God himself. But what did he come to do? Why did he come to earth? To give us his glory. And the way he does that is through the suffering. It's through death. Through the brutal, bitter, horrible, excruciating, unjust death of Jesus on the cross, he, the king of glory lost his glory in order that through his suffering he might give you glory. Because Jesus is the ultimate somebody. Who are we? You know, through our rebellion, through our sin, we have made ourselves the other to God. That's what we've done. But on the cross, Jesus Christ, the ultimate somebody, he became the ultimate other. So that through his suffering we could become somebodies who can now stand before God and not just survive God's presence, but be loved, be welcomed, be delighted in as an artist delights in his work, as a father delights in his children. That's what's in store for us if we trust in Jesus. And that means that when you say yes to Jesus, when you say yes to everything God wants to do in your life, he makes you a vehicle of his glory in the lives of others, that we now enter partially into the pattern of the gospel, the pattern of what Jesus has already done perfectly, so that when you say yes to him, you're saying yes to all the ways that he might use your suffering to reveal his glory to the world around you. And friends, listen, it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to be maybe even sometimes brutal. You know, but this is what Paul says at the very end. For this I toil, that through me others might see the glory of God. For this I toil, that, that others might be presented mature and perfect in Jesus Christ. For this I toil. But did you notice the way he says it at the very end? This is one of my favorite parts in the passage. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy, God's energy, that he so powerfully works in me. 
And that word struggling is where we get our English word agonize. Paul is saying, I agonize with all of God's energy that he so powerfully works in me. Do do you see the the incongruence of that? I've asked myself this question many times. Wait a minute. If I've got God's power in my life, if I've got God's grace in my life, then shouldn't it be a little easier? Why is the Christian life so hard? Why wouldn't things be easier if I've got God's grace in my life? The reality is this, and it's beautiful. Friends, God's grace doesn't make the Christian life easy. It makes it possible. It doesn't make it easy. It makes it possible. We would never even begin to enter into this kind of life were it not for the grace of God. It may still be hard. It may still be brutal and bitter and painful, but it's possible, possible to say yes to what God wants to do in your life and through your life. Possible to be free from superiority, the superiority that's always lurking in our hearts over other people. Possible to be free of the bitterness and the self-pity that creep into our hearts and harden our hearts every time suffering comes into our lives. It's possible even to, to rejoice, to know joy, the joy of being used by a Savior who gave up his glory through suffering in order that he might give us his glory through his suffering in order that we might be used by that Savior to be agents of the same glory to the world around us. Have you said yes to this Savior? Have you said yes to Jesus and given yourself to him? There is no joy greater, and it's the only way through the suffering that will bring you into the very same joy. Let's pray.